cow. That was way more fun than I even dreamed it up being. Thank you, dance team. Let's give a hand for the dance team. Anyone know who that song is by? Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones, I would submit to you, were a prophet and they didn't even know it. This song captures the reality that so many in the world today feel, I can't get no satisfaction. The Rolling Stones released this song in 1965. It was a number one hit. It was a top 100 hit for 14 weeks and sold a million CDs in the U.S., and this is 1965. In 2004, it was placed as number two on the all-time list of the 500 top greatest songs. Now, what made this song so popular? What was the attraction to it? Perhaps because it was so true. Catchy tune and classic title aside, the words of the song ring true in most people's ears. Now, we can evaluate this. While Mick and the gang identified the problem, they were a far cry from the solution. Likewise now, returning to the life of Solomon, though he was the wisest man to ever live and could accurately identify a problem, he had his own struggles in finding the solution as well. Uh, ironically, I think we're going to use that song as our theme song for this next series we're going to do. Uh, we're going to launch into a little series on this idea of satisfaction called Searching for Satisfaction. Searching for Satisfaction. Turn to Ecclesiastes again. You may recall that Deontay has done a wonderful job in informing us of what's the point of the book and what the point of chapter one is in particular and in detail. He's done a great job of showing us that everything under the sun is to no avail as it occurs in its natural state apart from the supernatural. And you might remember this word, vanity. Everything under the sun, everything apart from God is vanity or fleeting. And just to remind you, this word vanity is the word hevel in the Hebrew language, and it actually does not mean useless. It doesn't mean useless. It doesn't mean bad. These things are not altogether wrong, but what they are is they're meaningless or they're fleeting. In other words, they cannot satisfy you as a source of fulfillment and satisfaction. Vanity is a word ascribed to anything that cannot be God. It's fleeting, it's temporary, it's natural at best. And that's really the point of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Now, like I mentioned, we're going to do a, a, a little mini-series here. We're going to do it out of chapter 2, just keep working through the book, calling it Searching for Satisfaction. And I want to tell you, friends, this series is going to challenge you. It will challenge you no matter who you are and where you are in your walk with the Lord. If you've been a believer for five years, great. Ten years, great. There's something here to challenge you. If you are just coming to know the Lord, or if you don't even know if you know the Lord yet, this series is going to cut down deep in our hearts. So, are you excited? <laughs> I am. I'm very excited. To begin this, I want to read our text that we'll consider for all five weeks, and then we'll pray and dig into the first of what I'm going to call idols. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. 
I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely, and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I had possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Father, this is the word of God. You have given it to us. You have inspired it. Lord, you have kept it without error. Now it is authoritative in our lives. It is sufficient for all that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Lord, humble us. Attune our hearts to hear, to understand, to repent, and to grow in our relationship with you. Lord, reveal idols in our hearts tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first idol that we're going to take on tonight is the idol of fun. Fun, just three letters, and yet I might submit to you, friends, and I'm probably going to say this every week, this could be the biggest idol of them all. It really could. Our culture, perhaps above all other cultures, and when I say that, I want to compare us to other cultures in the world today and also cultures in history past, our culture is addicted to fun. How can I say that? Well, never before has life been so easy. For centuries, the requirement to stay alive was to work. Sure, once in a while, there was recreation, even in the past, but for the most part, you were preoccupied putting food on the table, building a shelter, and then defending those things from people who wanted to take them. So there was constantly wars. There was constantly weather to battle and hunger and disease. Our generation has seen a unique time of peace and ease of life that has resulted in a culture of fun. While our parents likely grew up in somewhat of a working class, we have grown up in a fun-filled class or a fun-filled generation. And really, friends, if you don't want to work, you don't have to, do you? You want to see proof? How many times do college students, this is going to hit home, how many times do college students switch their majors? Ooh, well, why is this significant? Well, here's maybe one example of how this plays out. Oh, I want to do engineering. That sounds like fun. Plus, I really like trains. (laughs) A year later, ooh, actually, I want to do chemistry. I've always wanted to blow stuff up. Six months after that, well, chemistry wasn't what I thought it was, but dissecting stuff. Now, that's my cup of tea. I'll switch to a biology major. One year after that, actually, I think agriculture is where my heart is. I like mowing the grass, and I had a few pets growing up, so that'll probably be a good fit. This story is not that uncommon, though, is it? What's the numbers lately on the average times that a college student will switch to their major? I had heard five or six, maybe even seven. In the past, you see, you went to college to be able to get a job that would make you more money so that maybe you could have a better life than your parents did and maybe help your parents get out of the hole. But now, many students go to college for fun and for the experience of it. The pervasive mindset among college students today is fun. How much fun can I have? Right? That's the question that we're all after. And if you just ask people today, 
who are in their 30s, late 30s, maybe even 40s, when they look back on their college years, what do they often say? They don't say, oh, that was such an educational time. I was really trained up in those textbooks. No, they say, man, that was a lot of fun. Those were fun years. Now, I don't want to throw that out altogether, but I just want to draw to our attention that we live in a fun-filled culture, do we not? Really, if you survey MSU's campus and the college culture across America, it goes really from one weekend to the next. You're living for one big event to the next, one football game to the next, one concert to the next, one party to the next, and on and on and on. It's just fun, fun, fun. I came across an interesting article by the New York Times, and you tell me if this rings true or not. It was on the topic of adult essence, or adult essence. Adult essence came of age in 2004, but only as a word. The adult it describes is too busy playing Halo 2 on his Xbox or watching SpongeBob at his parents' house to think about growing up. The editors of the Webster's New World College Dictionary chose adolescence as, wor- as the word of the year. They said there were enough examples to constitute a Peter pandemic. Since 1970, the median age for Americans to marry has risen four years to 25 for women and 27 for men. Meanwhile, the proportion of people in their early 30s who have never married has tripled. There are 4 million Americans between 25 and 34 still living with their parents, not always happily, as the Apartments.com website discovered last year when it offered a $10,000 scholarship for the best essay from an adult essence desperate for money to get his or her own place. The winner was a 25-year-old woman who was sharing a room with her 17-year-old brother. But being unencumbered by rent or mortgages or children can have lots of disposable income as well. Someone free to do nothing, like the characters on Seinfeld, or party all night, like the ones in Sex in the City. Someone with a connoisseur's passion for plasma televisions, Kelly bags, Harry Potter movies, and low-riding Gap jeans. Someone with a ritual call at birthday parties, 30 is the new 20, 40 is the new 30, etc. One common explanation for the rise in adolescence is the cost of housing and education, which has made it harder for young people, especially in places like New York, to afford homes and children. Another explanation is that young adults now enjoy some pleasures of marriage without the consequences. But, and here's the punchline, if you ask adolescence why they haven't grown up, they may give you a simple answer, because they don't have to. So what about us? What about our destiny? Is our ultimate satisfaction going to be found in placing as much fun and entertainment in our lives and putting off responsibility for as long as possible? Is that how we're really going to arrive and make it? Let's look again at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And what I want to do first is look at this experiment as a whole. And I want to outline four elements of this experiment You may recall that Deontay has been teaching the point of this book, and the big picture uh, theme of Ecclesiastes is vanity, but it's been somewhat uh, impersonal. In other words, it's been about nature as a whole and mankind as a whole. Well, chapter two, friends, gets intensely personal. We dig into the life of Solomon, and I think we're going to dig into our own lives and our own hearts as we do this. And so, just uh, as an outset to this experiment, I want to point out four aspects And the first is that the experiment was predetermined. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. I said to myself, and stop right there. 
This phrase literally is, I said in my heart, or I said to my heart. And you may know this, but in Hebrew language, the heart represented the inner self. It was the disposition of your inner self. It included the will, the intention, the conscience, the reasoning of the mind. It was essentially the control center for all that you did. So Solomon here is actively choosing and willing in his heart to do this experiment. He is determining to set his face to do this and to do it well. And this is significant for us today. As we will see, the end of this is sin. And Solomon went after various idols as though they were a god. And seen here in this first observation was that this was a predetermined act. He said in his mind, I'm going to go and sin. In other words, it wasn't spontaneous. It wasn't unknown to him what he was doing. Some people, I think, wander into sin. Maybe their hearts aren't right beforehand, and so they choose to sin. But nonetheless, it's not a predetermined act. Some sins in our lives we're not aware of. They're unknown sins. And yet, I think the psalmist, writing in Psalm 19, helps us here when he says, Lord, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. So gang, right off the bat, there's already a a helpful nugget from this passage. You see, there's hidden sins and there's presumptuous sins. There's those which you don't know about in your life and there's those which you know about and you choose to do anyways. If you want to walk with God, if you want to maintain your relationship with the Lord, if you want to grow, you must kill presumptuous sins. You must kill those predetermined sins and cease from doing them. To quote James 4.17, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Therefore, we must kill, put to death all sin that we're aware of in our lives. Solomon didn't do that. In fact, quite the opposite here. He determined, he set his face to do more sin, to indulge himself in this experiment from the get-go. That's point number one, is that the experiment was predetermined. Point number two, the experiment was done with enthusiasm. The experiment was done with enthusiasm. Look again, I said to myself, come now. Or literally here the idea is, let's do this. In fact, I like the message Bible here. It says, let's go for it. As we'll see in weeks to come, Solomon didn't hold anything back. This experiment was full-blown, full immersion, and so we would do well to learn from him. You see, here's the thing, gang. We often dabble in things that we know have no satisfaction, don't we? We'll stick our foot in, even as Christians, down a road that we know has no good end. And yet we'll say, oh, I'm just going to go a little bit down this road. Well, what we're going to learn from Solomon is that he did this all the way. He took this to the end. He did it with gusto, with enthusiasm. He threw himself into the world of sin. And you know what? It came up empty. He came up empty. The, the conclusion of the matter is vanity. So we need to let this experiment be a reminder to us. There's nothing there. There's nothing at the end of that path. The experiment was done with enthusiasm. Number three, the experiment was exhaustive. And again, we're just coming at this from different angles. The experiment was exhaustive. Now think of this. If you or I were to try to run this experiment that Solomon's going to do, he's going to test his heart. He's going to test himself with pleasure. I think we could come up with a, a multitude of reasons why we wouldn't be able to do that fully. We might say, well, if I had more money, then I could really do this well. Well, if I just was in a better setting or a better position of power and influence, then I could do this all the way. Well, if I just had more wisdom, I just can't figure out how to get more pleasure in my life, then I could achieve this fully. 
Well, what's unique about Solomon? He's the richest man to ever live. He's got the most power and influence in the entire world. And he's the wisest man to ever live. Okay, yet still, there could be another objection. Well, what if, what if Solomon had all these things, but he really didn't pursue pleasure all the way? Well, you know what? That comes back to point number one. He determined in his heart to do this. So here's what you have. You have the richest man in the world. You have the wisest man in the world. You have the most influential man in the world putting all of his heart into pursuing this experiment. Do you think this experiment is going to be exhaustive? Is it going to have uh, complete results? Yes, it will. It will have full results so that we have no excuse at the end. To share a personal aspect of my own life, God did a miracle in my life about seven years ago when he saved me, when he changed my heart, opened my eyes to realize the vanity of living life for yourself. And one of the easiest ways for me to get discouraged now is to look around and see how many people are living a lie, how many people are spending their entire life chasing the American dream. They're running after education or a job or money or a bigger house or possessions or even family, and they're, putting, they're choosing an idol and then running after it. And unlike Solomon, Solomon could have it all right now. How about the rest of us? Can we have it all right now? No. We get caught in a lie and we chase it our entire lives. And some people make it to the end of that thing. And you don't want to know what they find out? That the leprechaun was a liar. There's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It's empty. And yet they're 65 years old. It's a tragedy, isn't it? It's an utter tragedy. Well, what about Solomon? Solomon had endless resources to pursue this pleasure. He had infinite wealth, infinite possessions, infinite power. To add to this, he was the wisest man ever. And he resolved to do this in his heart. There's another evidence here, though, that I think supports this point. The experiment was exhaustive. The phrase, so enjoy yourself. Literally, it, said, it would say, inspect into good, or go see into all that is good. Go set out to understand what is good. The word is ra'ah. In the Hebrew, it means see. And really, it's to see with your mind's eye. It's to perceive, to understand, to experience. And what he's setting out to experience here, he says, so go and experience the good. Well, what is the good? All that is perceived as good among mankind. In other words, it's exhaustive. Anything that might be good for man, naturally speaking, under the sun, this is what Solomon sought after. In other words, he sought after it all. This uh, command to himself in verse 1, so enjoy yourself, is an all-encompassing command that set him loose to pursue pleasure to its fullest. Friends, this experiment was exhaustive. The next five weeks, I think, are going to show that as we work through these eight verses. And yet, what does this mean for us? Again, I said this, but really, we have no excuse then. We have no way out. We have nothing to one-up Solomon with and say, well, uh, maybe he didn't have it all figured out yet. And what's the phrase that comes up over and over again in Ecclesiastes? There's nothing new under the sun. He's already tried it. He's already gone down this path. So that's the third observation. The fourth observation is this. The experiment was born out of a lust for pleasure. This experiment was birthed out of a lust for pleasure. He says in verse 1, I will test you with pleasure. And then again, that phrase, so enjoy yourself. And this word for pleasure here is important. It's the word joy, 
or pleasure or maybe jubilation. And it's actually the word that is used to refer to the joy that is found in God. In fact, it's the joy that can only be found in God. It's an all-encompassing state of joy. What makes that interesting then is that Solomon is pursuing the deepest form of joy and yet he's never going to find it. It's only found in God. There's a sense in which this is really wonderful for us. It's helpful. He's going after the state of bliss, the state of satisfaction, of jubilee, and that's the same thing we want, isn't it? That's the same thing we are searching for. If you're an unbeliever, you're really searching for it. Even as believers, I'm not sure that all of us have totally progressed as we ought to be progressing in our Christian walks. There are things that are holding us back from having the fullness of joy that I think God wants us to have. And so Solomon pursued this out of a lust for pleasure rather than using the things God gave him like wisdom and wealth for the reason that he gave it to him to rule wisely and to give God glory. He used it for his own pleasure. If you've read the news this week, you are aware of the terrible and sad tragedy that happened in Las Vegas. The shooting by Stephen Paddock that occurred earlier this week, we don't know the motives of it. They're uncertain. If you followed the case, you know the motive is still unknown. Uh, Just this morning, in fact, I read an article titled, The Mystery Deepens on Las Vegas Shooter's Motive. All that is known is that this man was retired and he was now a very high-stakes poker player. He would gamble $100,000 at a time. And though we can't say again for certain his motive, I wonder if this tragedy was a case of lust for pleasure gone rogue. I wonder if it was a lust for pleasure gone rogue. Here's why I say that. I I did a little bit of digging. Just five years ago, there was another serial killer that killed himself. His name was Israel Keys, and he was arrested in Alaska. And sadly, when uncovering his motives, the investigator reported this. He enjoyed it. He liked what he was doing. He talked about getting a rush out of it, the adrenaline, the excitement out of it. And he later added that he liked seeing the coverage of his crimes in the media. In his case, the crime started small with burglaries and thefts until they progressed to the state of murder and then multiple murders. Friends, brothers, sisters, look at what happens when the lust for pleasure goes unchecked. This is a dangerous sin, is it not? These are two radical extremes, two men that caused irrevocable harm, irreversible damage, hurt and pain that will never be ended. And both of these men now sit under the condemnation of a just God. But when we look at King Solomon, we're seeing a lot of the same heart. And when we look at ourselves, there's an aspect of the same heart. We need to hear this message message tonight. King Solomon ran after pleasure. He ran after fun. He ran after whatever felt good and was enjoyable for himself. And in doing this experiment, we would do well to learn from him. Now, this is, these are just four elements of the experiment as a whole. I think we're looking at fun as the basis of the whole thing. But Solomon was a wise guy, and this is him writing back on this experience. And so now he gives us an assessment of it. Look at the end of verse 1. He says, And behold, it too was futility or vanity. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? 
So he's a, he assesses it, and he says, even here again, it is vanity. He's already used this phrase once in chapter 1, verse 2. Generally speaking, he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then he uses it again in chapter 1, verse 14. He says, all is vanity, and it's striving after the wind. This time referring to the works that man do and the works that man tries to accomplish. Now here, though, He's answering what I believe could have been a skeptic. It could have been a skeptic coming in and saying, well, the reason that uh, all this is vanity is because you're just not living for yourself, man. You're just not really seeking to live it up. You're not going after fun and pleasure like you really could. Look how he uses it here. He says, even the pleasure was vanity. Even the fun, even if you live a life indulged in self, this even is fleeting. It's meaningless. It's useless. It holds no weight for significance. And so the phrase in 2.1 is referring to that of pleasure. Even pleasure here is expelled as being unable to satisfy. And then in verse 2, he's going to explain this a little bit. He's going to explain in detail what he's talking about. I said of laughter, it is madness. Laughter is mad, he says, or it's senseless, it's foolish. In other words, if you're spending your life just pursuing fun, and now we're talking about laughter, you are constantly a scene of mockery. That's the idea there. You're a joke. You're a joke. Well, what am I talking about? Well, here's maybe some examples. I think of a scenario of uh, a living room full of 14-year-old teenage boys just in a a fit of giggles, right? It's sleepover time. They're eating pizzas. They're just laughing themselves away. If you pursued that with your life, what a joke, right? Or how about the thrill of a roller coaster ride? Maybe you and your friends like roller coasters or whatever it is you like, and you go there and you're just, oh, it's so fun. You're screaming and you're laughing. But if that was your life, if you were trying to derive meaning from that, it's a joke. A more serious example How about the drunken parties that occur every weekend in this town? Every Saturday night, every Sunday night, every Friday night. You know what? Every Monday night and Tuesday night and Wednesday night and Thursday night as well. If your life is just about laughter, it's just about fun, it's just about pleasure and enjoyment, it's going to be a joke. There's no meaning in that. It is futility. Now listen, laughter is not wrong, but pursuing laughter as a God, fun as a God, Now, that's just speaking of outward laughter, but look at the second phrase in chapter 2, verse 2. It says, of laughter, it's madness, but of pleasure, what does it accomplish? And again, this word for pleasure is this deep joy, this holistic joy. And now he's saying, what does it accomplish? And friends, I think that what he's doing here, he's looking at the spectrum of fun. He's looking at the fun that's outward, the laughter, the, the, you know, just the giggles and all that outwards. And then he's looking at the fun that's almost a more dignified fun. It's more internal fun. It's a more internal pleasure and joy. What kind of things? Well, how about the joy of a close friend or a companion? The joy of a beautiful hike? The joy of telling jokes and laughing with a roommate? Those are fun times. The joy of having a child? The joy of playing a game? The joy of fun in general? You see, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of these, but if they are your God, If you seek these out for satisfaction in your life, look what he says. He says, what does it accomplish? What does it accomplish? In fact, again, getting practical, sometimes I wonder, why do unbelievers get married? I just can't imagine why you would get married if you were not a believer, and then how you would stay married. 
it must be a convenience thing or a tax write-off because in and of itself, marriage does not satisfy, right? It wears off if not for Christ. Why have kids? There's no inerrant joy in just being a parent. The joy comes from getting the privilege of raising a kid to love and fear the Lord, of getting to see God's creation in a new person, his image, right? These things are inherently uh, intrinsic in the gospel, in God creating us. So if you're apart from God and searching for satisfaction in marriage or kids or relationships or friends or a job, Solomon says to you, what does it accomplish? Without the Lord, why be honest? Why be a peaceable person? Why be a good guy or a good gal? Why be nice? What does it accomplish? There is no end. So, both of external, ecstatic forms of joy and laughter and fun and internal, holistically, they do not satisfy. So again, this is kind of the overarching theme. We're, we're taking this one on tonight. It's going to guide us through the rest of our time. And what I want to do now is I want to get intensely practical to close our time out together. I want to look at how we can apply this. And it would seem that the greatest avenue that our culture outlets its desire for fun is in entertainment. Ooh. Entertainment. We live in an entertainment world. How many ways do we entertain ourselves today? Well, maybe the easier question is, how do we not entertain ourselves today? I tried making a list just of a few things, and it went on and on and on. Things like movies, Redbox, television, Netflix, Hulu, YouTube, fiction novels, plays, musicals, concerts, contests, video games, reality TV, The Voice, uh, races, rodeos, sports, within sports, football, basketball, baseball, track, golf, hockey, Olympics, Social media, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter. Shall we continue? The list could go on and on. Listen, gang, we live, we are immersed in an entertainment-driven culture. Here's what's interesting. Even the English word entertain, do you want to know what it means? Entertain. Here we go. It's the act of providing or being provided with amusement. Okay. Well, what does amusement mean? Well, amusement is, here we go, it's to divert one's attention or to distract. In other words, entertainment and amusement are literally a disengagement from the real world by design. It's entering into a fake reality. It's disengaging from the normal responsibilities of life, the normal flow of what life is about in order to sit back, relax, and not have to think, to literally be amused. And if you think about entertainment, that's exactly what it is. It's sitting and watching and not responding and not thinking and watching stuff that's fake and not real life. Now, how much do you think the average household in America spends on entertainment? Well, each month it's $200. So that's over $2,000 in a year. In America as a whole, it's a $500 billion uh, not ministry, (laughs) industry. $500 billion industry. And in the world, it's $2 trillion. Entertainment, $2 trillion. For what? Well, to be amused. To be amused. Now, I want to go back to our text, and I want to draw something from this that I think speaks into entertainment in particular. Look back at Ecclesiastes 2, verse 8. And we'll get to some of these other idols. If you're getting anxious, don't worry. We're going to cover them too. Uh, Verse 8, though. Also I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. And here we go. I provided for myself male and female singers. 
So in the midst of listing avenues where Solomon sought joy from now here in verse 8, he says in one translation, I got singers. Just three words. I got singers. And I think just a little bit of background helps here. What we need to understand is that in this day and age, your entertainment options were fairly limited, especially in home. Didn't have a television, didn't have a stereo. Even in Jesus' day, there was more options. There were uh, gladiator games, there was a form of Olympics, there were chariot races. But this is a thousand years before Jesus even. And so in this day, the primary form of entertainment was singing and dancing. Now Solomon is the wealthiest man in the world. And so he gets the singers, probably the best singers and the best dancers, to come into his home. He brings them into his home for the express purpose of being amused, of being entertained, or we might say, of having fun. This was his form of entertainment. The root of this is the same. It's amusement, it's distraction from the real world, and yet did it bring him lasting satisfaction? Did this solve the matter? Well, don't forget in verse 1, he says all of this was futility. Futility. All of it was vanity. It was all fleeting. I think that Solomon, had he known that song, he would be singing, I can't get no satisfaction. Right? And this is yet another avenue that he tries. Entertainment. And so what about for us? How does entertainment impact our lives? Do you think you got the problem? Do you have the disease? Well, let me ask you a few few questions. You may have the disease if, when you're at work or school, you often think about getting home to watch TV or get on the internet. You may have this problem if, during the week, you find yourself longing for the weekend so that you can go to such and such an event. Can't wait to get to that concert. Can't wait to get to that game. Can't wait to get to this big social gathering. You may be addicted to entertainment if you spend a lot of your money on fun and amusement. For example, if you were to ask your friends, if I were to ask your friends what things you most enjoy in life, how many of them would be fun-driven and entertainment-driven? And the final test of if this is an issue for you today is, are you willing to sin to get it? Are you willing to sin to get it? Think about it, friends. When you ride a roller coaster, are you settled for the rest of your life? When you go to a movie, if you enjoy movies, are you just filled with joy for the next five years? (laughs) If you like sports and maybe your team wins, are you content after they win the championship? All I'm trying to do is just show you the meaninglessness of it. And yet, do we get trapped in this? Oh my goodness. Just two years ago, I rooted for the Broncos when Peyton Manning was on that team. And all year long, I followed him, watched game after game hours of football, checking scores. They make it to the playoffs. They make it through the playoffs. And you know what? They won the Super Bowl. And I thank God for really revealing to me in the matter of minutes the emptiness of it all. They won the Super Bowl. And I remember sitting there and the Super Bowl's over, football season's over, and just thinking to myself, really? This is it? This is what I've spent hours this whole fall tracking and following and rooting for? This hasn't impacted me in any way. I am no different than I was 10 minutes ago before they had won the Super Bowl. Wow, this is fleeting. This is just not satisfying whatsoever, especially just for me as a fan. (laughs) And yet, if you look at a lot of people today, you would think their lives depend on it, whether or not their team wins, right? They're willing to skip church, skip small groups, skip a spiritual meeting, skip discipleship. 
In the end of the day, there's no lasting value from entertainment. None. In other words, there's no eternal benefit derived from being amused. What's even more sad, though, is this. The entertainment drive is impacting even how we do church, isn't it? Look at the church in America today. Look at the church in the world today. Fun and entertainment is driven by consumer wants and desires, and when the church begins to adopt that as the goal, they are also driven by consumer wants and desires. So what happens? Well, the content of the message, the music, the outreach efforts, all of these are conformed to a seeker-sensitive approach. One man stated this about the music in a lot of churches. He said, contemporary worship creates a tone that is casual, comfortable, chatty, busy, humorous, pleasant, and at times even cute. He goes on to say, if the seraphim would adopt this Sunday morning mood, they would be addressing God not as holy, 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 but as nice, nice, nice. Overall, the church has begun to appeal to man's felt needs rather than seeking to honor God in his word. Expository preaching of the word of God has been replaced for what? Well, for cultural talks, for social discussions, and for sermons on a movie. Quality music with good lyrics is being traded in for pop songs that pose as worship. Good Christian fellowship with quality conversations is being replaced with social events where spiritual talk is completely absent. And true and biblical evangelism is being replaced with programs and celebrity speakers. Listen, gang, this entertainment drive, this is impacting even the church. Is this an issue? I think it is. So what do we do with fun and entertainment? I want to close with just four steps to thinking through fun biblically. Four steps to thinking through fun biblically. And number one is to acknowledge its grip on society. You know what the first thing drug counselors and alcohol counselors want to accomplish with their patients? It's to get them to admit they have a problem. And likewise, you won't go to the doctor until you recognize you have a problem. And so at the bare minimum, we need to recognize the culture we live in is an entertainment and fun-driven culture. And likewise, gang, we have been sucked right up into that. Even as Christians, we can get sucked in to buying the lie, to taking the bait for something that's deceitful and unsatisfying. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying all entertainment is wrong. It's not. And we're going to get to that in a moment. But what I am arguing is that there's a likelihood that you have an idol in your heart. Yes, believe it or not, I had to go before the Lord in the midst of studying this. You may have this idol in your heart where you overemphasize and you love, sinfully so, fun, entertainment, recreation, rest, Again, those questions I asked are pertinent at this point too. How often do you think about it? How much money do you spend on it? How much does your world revolve around fun and entertainment? Do you know that entertainment can actually lead to other sins as well? In fact, I'm convinced that's why Paul in 1 Timothy 5 tells younger widows to remarry again. Why? Because if you go study that passage, it was in order to keep them from being gossips and busybodies. The text says talking about things that aren't proper. And you and I both know how easy it is when you're bored, when you don't have anything on your mind, to begin to just talk and talk and talk. That was their form of entertainment. And so we need to not only recognize that entertainment is part of our lives, but to potentially that it has become one of the drives of our lives. We need to acknowledge that it's there and that it's influential. Number two, 
We need to rediscover our created purpose in the role of fun. We need to rediscover our created purpose by God and the role that fun should play. And this is a big one. We could spend a lot more time here. I just want to give us a little bit of framework to think through it, though. If we go back to Genesis chapter 1, and we won't turn there, but we'll just talk about it. God made us in his image. He made us in his image, which means we represent him. We uniquely above all the rest of creation, have been set to have dominion over the planet and to represent his image, his likeness. But what's interesting is if you read Genesis 1 and 2, it follows that by a list of verbs, a list, a list of commands to mankind. He says we're to fill the earth, we're to subdue the earth, we're to rule over all creatures, we're to work the garden, we're to be one with our spouse, and then we're to raise kids to do the same thing. And just in my estimation, thinking about this, I think we can summarize man's created purpose in two ways, according to Genesis 1 and 2. Work and relationships. Again, we have to be right with God, but we, in representing God and glorifying God, we are called to work and we are called to have relationships. Now, we're not to work as our identity or a source of joy, but we're to work to represent God. And yet, in the midst of this, God has also commanded us to rest, right? God rested on the seventh day, in a sense, paving the way as a pattern. We're to work hard, and then we're to rest well. And so, in the midst of thinking through both our created purpose, we're to work, and I think build relationships in the midst of glorifying God. And then, how do we think about fun and rest? Scripture's not silent there, either. Listen to these passages. I think these are going to help us thinking through fun. 1 Timothy 6.17 let me read this, actually. This is too good. 1 Timothy six seventeen, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. What, how does that speak to fun and entertainment? Well, here's how it does. The rich are not to put their hope in riches. They're to put their hope on God. But once their hope is on God, notice what it says. God supplies us with all things to enjoy. He doesn't say go sell everything you have. He doesn't say never have fun, never have any enjoyment. Set your gaze on God and then you can enjoy things right. Did you ever think about this? That Christians really ought to enjoy life and the things of this earth even more than Christians. We ought to enjoy the things of this planet even more. Why? Because we are not idolizing them. We do not search for them for satisfaction. We don't go to them as our God. But we have God as our God. James 1.17 says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Friends, we don't want to swing too far in this whole discussion. We don't want to say that Christians aren't allowed to have fun. We see from this passage and from 1 Timothy that fun things, good things, enjoyable things are given from God. The key is, is that we're just not to idolize them. And so, moving from point number two, point number two is we need to rediscover our created purpose. I think we're made to work, to represent God. We're made to have relationships with people. And we need to rediscover the role of fun, which is that it needs to be subservient to God. God is our our source of joy. And yet, through God, we can enjoy all things he's given us. Number three is we need to assess how our time, or assess how your time and money are spent towards fun. 
Just a simple test. And all I'm going to do is say this. Is that where your time goes and where your money goes, this is where your heart really is. Right? I would challenge you. If you're coming off this, you're feeling convicted, then do an assessment. Look at your life and see how much of my time and money revolve around myself. My own pleasure. My own recreation. My own leisure. Philippians 4.8 says, Whatever's true. Whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good repute, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. When does that verse apply? Just when we're working? No, all the time. So does your fun pass that test? Does it pass the test of Psalm 101 verse 3? I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Or are you engaging in entertainment and fun that Jesus would say, that is worthless? That is a waste of time. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that includes entertainment. Lastly, number four, we need to redeem and reschedule good fun time that glorifies God. We need to redeem and reschedule good fun time that glorifies God. You know, just a a quick personal testimony. I've kind of stopped going to movies as often as I used to. I don't think movies are sinful in and of themselves. But here's why. I'm married, I got kids, I got a friend who's married and has kids, we get to hang out like once every three months, and we used to just go to movies. We'd drive to the movie theater, we'd walk in, have about 10 seconds of conversation, buy a ticket, go sit, stare at the wall for two hours, get up, walk out, that was pretty sweet, wasn't it? Yeah, that was. All right, man, see you in three months. And it's like, man, I don't even know how his marriage is going or how his life is going, how his Christian walk is going. He doesn't know anything about my life either. So I've really tried to rethink and reschedule good recreation time that allows for conversation, that allows for things that are edifying, things that are good and redeemable. This can look different ways. Maybe it's going to a football game with someone who's an old unbelieving friend in hopes of building relationship with them. Maybe it's going bowling with a group of believers just in hopes of spending good time together and building closer fellowship networks. Maybe it's taking your sibling or your close friend fishing because you know that it's something they enjoy to do. If the motive is to glorify God, even in our recreation, I think that we should, of all people, enjoy fun. We should enjoy entertainment. We just shouldn't idolize it, right? Well, may God give us the grace to discern and make wise decisions in this area to bring him glory. Friends, entertainment is an opportunity. Fun is an opportunity. We need wisdom, don't we? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we think of Solomon's life, and it is a tragedy, Lord. It really is that he spent so much of his time and money not for the reasons that you gave it to him. Lord, this, according to Romans 15, 4, is written for our instruction that we might learn. So God, humble us. If we are arrogant right now in our thinking, if we think this doesn't apply, this isn't for us, I pray you would humble us now. That we would realize this is so pertinent to where we are right now today. Father, would you grip our hearts to see that there is a problem, to see and examine ourselves, to see if we are idolizing entertainment or fun. Lord, and that we would turn to you. In the midst of that, though, Lord, we do want to think about fun well, and we want to be advocates of enjoying life because we know your son. There's so much joy, fullness of joy. In fact, the only true full joy can come from you. So we of all people should exude joy. 
And yet not on the basis of entertainment, not on the basis of fun and just doing things, but because we know you. And then, Lord, as we do these things, we can hopefully point people. I pray that we would point people to a greater joy than bowling or roller coasters or TV or a football game. Lord, that we would point people to the infinite joy that is found in your son. God, that's our prayer. For those who are here tonight, which I know that there are some who don't know you, that you would grip their hearts, that you would transform them from the inside out, open their eyes to behold the vanity and the meaninglessness of running after these idols, running after life without you. Lord, we are only satisfied. We only have meaning and significance when we are in right relationship with you through your son. So would they repent and turn to you in childlike faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.